was beyond promise. We were seeing it functioning as designed, as expected. The U.S. spent millions researching and perfecting a breakthrough battery only to give the technology to a company in China. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, an NPR investigation into how the U.S. lost its own technology to China. Also, Turkey is part of NATO and keeps close ties with the West, but its president is on his way to Russia with some very specific requests. We'll hear from a retired NASA astronaut about Russia's decision to leave the International Space Station, and Governor Baker announces the MBTA will shut down the entire Orange Line for a full month so that they can perform some much-needed repairs. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's issuing a second executive order that counters the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling that ended nationwide access to abortions. Today's order makes it easier for women to travel between states to terminate their pregnancies. One directive allows states where abortion is still legal to apply for certain Medicaid waivers to help treat patients arriving from out of state. In announcing his latest action, Biden praised voters in the traditionally conservative state of Kansas who went to the polls in large numbers yesterday and rejected a GOP-backed effort to remove abortion protections from the state's constitution. The voters of Kansas sent a powerful signal that this fall the American people will vote to preserve and protect the right and refuse to let them be ripped away by politicians. And my administration has their back. Biden signed the order from the White House residence where he's still self-isolating with a rebound case of COVID-19. Just months before voters nationwide determined key races, including those that will affect the makeup of Congress, state and local officials say they're worried about the threats election workers are facing. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports lawmakers heard from some election officials today. One of the election officials testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee was Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. We cannot have a secure democracy if we do not protect the security of the people who administer our elections. And right now, we are facing an unprecedented wave of continuous, unrelenting harassment and threats. Benson says protesters descended on her home in December 2020 with bullhorns and shouted obscenities and threats. The Justice Department says it has reviewed around 1,000 threatening communications made to election officials. More than 100 of those have been deemed potentially unlawful. The department has dozens of ongoing investigations and has filed charges in five cases so far. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. In an Austin courtroom today, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones admitted that the Sandy Hook school shooting, the deadliest in U.S. history, was, quote, 100 percent real. NPR's John Burnett reports the parents of one of the children killed are suing Jones. Jones' attorney asked his client in court if he now understands that it was absolutely irresponsible to broadcast on his InfoWars platform that the Sandy Hook shooting was a hoax staged by the federal government. Jones agreed and said he later conceded the massacre did happen. His defense is that the First Amendment allows him to question not just the facts of Sandy Hook, but other newsworthy events from the September 11 attacks to the moon landing. But parents of a six-year-old killed at the Connecticut Elementary School testified that they've been hounded by deranged InfoWars followers subjected to death threats, online harassment, and shots fired at their homes. They're seeking up to $150 million in damages. John Burnett, NPR News, Austin. From Washington, this is NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA is shutting down the entire Orange Line for 30 days starting later this month. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports it's so that the T can make necessary track repairs and safety upgrades. The line will be shut down from August 19th until September 19th. The move comes on the heels of safety inspections that found track defects that have led to several derailments. Governor Charlie Baker says the accelerated repair plan is the quickest way to make the Orange Line faster, safer, and more reliable. To put it in perspective, the 30 days of 24-hour access to rebuild and replace tracks across this line will replace what would have taken five full years of weekend and evening diversions. Shuttle buses will replace trains during the shutdown. The T says the commuter rail could also be an option and people can use Charlie cards to pay the fare. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The T's general manager, Steve Poftak, says he appreciates the patience of riders. We've heard them loud and clear that they want bold action to improve the MBTA at the pace they deserve. And we know that we can't wait. So part of this shutdown is about not waiting. It is about making the necessary improvements and making them now. Poftak says he knows the shutdown is unprecedented and will be frustrating, but says the repairs are critical. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is declaring a heat emergency in the city beginning tomorrow. Actual temperatures are expected to reach the upper 90s, but when you factor in humidity, it could feel over 100 degrees tomorrow and Friday. The heat emergency will be in effect through Sunday. Boston will open cooling centers at its 16 centers for youth and families from 9 to 5 each day. Stock market volatility is being blamed in part for a $3 billion drop in the value of the state's pension fund in fiscal year 2022. State pension officials say while the fund lost nearly 3.5%, U.S. stocks were down almost 11% and international stocks dropped nearly 18%. Officials say the pension fund is still outperformed expected earnings. The Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst is opening back up to the public this month. It's been closed for over two years for renovations. The museum said today it will open again on August 16th. Advanced purchase tickets are required. In sports, the Red Sox are looking to sweep the Astros this afternoon in Houston, but at last check... The Sox were trailing 6 to nothing in the bottom of the sixth. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. Lows will be around 70 degrees. Tomorrow's going to be sunny and hot, the high around 99 degrees. However, the heat index will make it feel a few degrees hotter. Partly sunny with a chance of showers and thunderstorms on Friday. Right now, 78 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's a favorite promise of politicians. Keep manufacturing jobs and technology in America. And yet the U.S. keeps losing both to other countries. NPR's Laura Sullivan and Courtney Flatt from Public Radio's Northwest News Network investigate one story about a cutting-edge battery and how the U.S. may have lost the next big thing to China again. Chris Howard is standing in the rain outside an empty warehouse in Muckleteal, Washington. We used to have 10 shipping containers here. There were empty containers back here, customers and clients coming for visits. 
Howard used to work in this warehouse with more than a dozen other engineers and researchers for an American company called Uni Energy. Its name is still on the sign out front. What they were doing here was building a battery, not just any battery, something called a vanadium redox flow battery. It was about the size of a refrigerator, and Howard and the rest of the employees thought it was going to change the world. It was more than a job. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into developing a product that we were really excited about and really proud of. Unlike batteries and cell phones or even cars, these batteries could charge and discharge energy for as long as 30 years. And this particular design seemed to hold enough energy to power a house. Researchers pictured people plunking them down next to their air conditioners, attaching solar panels to them, and everyone living happily ever after off the grid. It was beyond promise. We were seeing it functioning as designed, as expected. They thought the batteries would be the next great American success story. But that's not what happened. Today, this warehouse is shuttered and empty. All the employees who worked here were laid off. And across the world, a Chinese company is making the batteries in Dali in China. The Chinese company didn't steal this technology. It was given to them by the U.S. Department of Energy. An NPR investigation found the department allowed the technology and jobs to move overseas, violating its own licensing rules, while failing to intervene on behalf of U.S. workers in multiple instances, according to internal department emails. Now China is forging ahead, investing millions into this cutting-edge green technology that was supposed to help keep the U.S. and its economy out front. It just is mind-boggling. Joanne Skivoski is the vice president of finance for a U.S. company called Forever Energy that has been trying to get a license from the department to make the batteries here for more than a year. This is technology made from taxpayer dollars. It was invented by a national lab, and it's deployed in China, and it's held in China. To say it's frustrating is an understatement. Department of Energy officials declined NPR's request for an interview and wouldn't explain how technology that cost U.S. taxpayers $15 million ended up in China. But after NPR sent department officials detailed questions laying out the timeline of events, officials terminated the license it gave to the Chinese company. In a statement, officials said the department, quote, takes American manufacturing obligations extremely seriously and is now, quote, undertaking an internal review of the licensing of vanadium battery technology. The story of how this happened begins where the battery was born, three hours southwest of Seattle, in the basement of a government lab called the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, where Courtney went to visit. Safety goggles on? Yep. <laughs> Vince Sprinkle works with energy storage here at the lab. We're going to go down into the redox flow battery lab. It was down here in 2006 that more than two dozen scientists began to suspect that a special mix of acid and electrolyte could hold unusual amounts of energy without degrading. They turned out to be right. Do you feel kind of like on the cutting edge of learning about these batteries? <laughs> yeah, we are. I mean, I, I think we've got one of the leading research groups uh, in the country and probably the world in this technology. It's because of this leading edge that when a success happens, the lab encourages scientists to go out and see if they can make and sell the inventions in the real world. The lab and the U.S. government still hold the patents because American taxpayers paid for the research. But the Department of Energy licenses the patents to scientists and companies willing to take a shot. In this case, it took six years and millions of taxpayer dollars to discover the perfect battery recipe. 
Gary Yang was the lead scientist, and he was excited to see if he could make them. In 2012, he left the lab with the license in hand and started Uni Energy Technologies at the warehouse in Mukilteo, Washington. I left the lab, follow legal process, and start Uni Energy Technology in Washington State. He hired engineers and researchers, but then he ran into trouble. He says he couldn't find any U.S. investors. I talked to almost all major investment banks. None of them invest in battery. So he turned to a Chinese businessman in a company called Dalian Runka Power and its parent company, which agreed to invest and even help manufacture the batteries. And so began a slow shift. First, Chris Howard said, it was just some parts. Ultimately, it was the whole process. Manufacturing was subsequently shifted to our uh, sister company in China, uh, and they would take on that role. In 2017, Yang and Uni Energy formalized the situation and gave Runka Power an official sublicense, allowing the company to make the batteries. So here's the thing. Companies can choose to manufacture in China. But in this case, Yang's original license clearly says on page six he has to sell batteries in the United States. And those batteries have to be, quote, substantially manufactured here. Yang acknowledges he didn't do that. He was mostly selling batteries in China, and the batteries he did sell here were largely made in China. But he says in all those years, the department never raised any concerns or intervened. Then, in 2019, Chris Howard said he and the other engineers were called to a conference room. Supervisors told them they, too, would have to go to China to work there for four months at a time at Runka Power. And that was set to be increased on the premise that there were certain government programs, Chinese government programs, that would support funding efforts. So it was unclear, certainly to myself and some of the other engineers, what the plan was. In a statement, the department said that license monitoring is a priority and that a review of this case is underway. All of which brings us to Yang. Yang was born in China, but he is a U.S. citizen and got his Ph.D. at the University of Connecticut. He says he wanted to manufacture here, but at the time, China was doing more to encourage battery production. And he told us China could do it better. In this field, manufacturing, engineering, China ahead of the U.S. China is ahead of the U.S. Ahead of the U.S. Many wouldn't believe engineering-wise ahead. He says far from helping China, the Chinese engineers were helping his U.S. employees. But you can see in several news reports at the time, it was helping China. The Chinese government launched several large demonstration projects and announced millions in funding. As things began to take off in China, here in the States, Yang was once again in financial trouble. So he made a decision that would again keep the technology from staying in the U.S. He transferred the license from Uni Energy to a company called Venetis. Venetis is based in the Netherlands, and we will set up a holding company in Switzerland. Rulof Plottenkampf is Venetis' founding partner. Plottenkampf told NPR the company's plan was to continue making the batteries in China, and then set up a factory in Germany, and eventually, maybe the U.S. He says he has to manufacture in Europe, because the European Union has strict rules about these things. I have to be a European company, or certainly a non-Chinese company, in Europe. But the United States has these rules, too. And any transfer of a U.S. government license needs U.S. government approval. Which Yang apparently had no trouble getting. 
We looked at department emails and found that last summer on July 7th, one of the top officials at Uni Energy wrote to a government manager at the Department of Energy lab in Washington, saying they were going to make a deal with Venetis. We believe they have the right blend of technical expertise, the official wrote. The manager wrote back that he would need confirmation. A second employee sent confirmation an hour and a half later, and the license was transferred. Now, if anyone from the lab or the Department of Energy during that hour and a half thought to check whether Venetis was an American company or whether it intended to manufacture in the United States is unclear. Even Venetis's website says it plans to make the batteries in China. Department of Energy officials told us they take all license transfers seriously and have recently closed significant loopholes. But they acknowledge their efforts rely to some extent on, quote, good faith disclosures by the companies, which means if companies like Uni Energy don't say anything, the U.S. government may never know. It's a problem government investigators found has been going on for years. In 2018, the Government Accountability Office found the department lacked resources to properly monitor its licenses, was relying on antiquated computer systems, and didn't have consistent policies across its labs. It was an American company, Forever Energy, that actually read the vanadium battery license and raised a red flag more than a year ago. Joansky Vosky and others there say they repeatedly warned department officials that the Uni Energy license was not in compliance. Officials repeatedly told them it was. How is it that the National Lab did not require U.S. manufacturing? Not only is it a violation of the license, it's a violation to our country. Skivoski hopes that now that the department has revoked the license, Forever Energy will get a chance. They're hoping to open a factory in Louisiana. We are ready to go with this technology. Skivoski told us it will be hard at this point for any American company to catch up. Industry trade reports list Dalian Runke Power as the number one manufacturer of vanadium flow batteries worldwide. And the bigger question looming over all of this is whether China will stop making the batteries once an American company is granted the right to start making them. That may be unlikely. Chinese news reports announced this summer that China is about to bring online one of the largest battery farms in the world, hoping to set new records for energy output. The reports say the entire battery farm is built out of vanadium redox flow batteries. I'm Courtney Flatt. And I'm Laura Sullivan. NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 79 degrees in Boston at 419. Just ahead on All Things Considered, the president of Turkey is on his way to Russia with some very specific requests. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In business news, Cambridge-based Moderna is reporting better-than-expected sales thanks to its COVID-19 vaccine. The company said today its revenue rose 9% in the last quarter to $4.7 billion. It expects sales will get even stronger when it delivers an Omicron-specific COVID booster shot next month. However, the company is also dealing with rising expenses associated with research and development. Net profit fell 21% in the last three months to just over $2 billion. Wall Street stocks were higher today. Dow finished up one and a quarter percent or 416 points at 32,812. NASDAQ rose 2.5% or 319 points to close at 12,668. And the S&P 500 up a half, one and a half percent, 64 points to close at 4155. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA's Free Thursday Nights. Enjoy an evening of live music on the waterfront and free museum admission. Tickets at icaboston.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow is going to be sunny and hot. The high will be around 99 degrees, but the heat index will make it feel a lot hotter. Partly sunny with a chance of showers and thunderstorms on Friday. The high 96. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Russian President Vladimir Putin plans to host Turkey's leader at a meeting in Russia on Friday. It's the second time the two men have met in the last few weeks. These meetings raise concerns in the West because Turkey is a NATO member and could be key in trying to end Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Turkey does have close ties to the West, but it also seeks some specific items from Russia. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Istanbul. For Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the meeting with Putin could be a chance to advance one of his key foreign policy goals, to establish a so-called security corridor along the Syrian border by pushing back Kurdish fighters that Turkey sees as terrorists. Erdogan has been saying that move, which the U.S. and other countries oppose, could come at any time. As soon as our work to repair the deficiencies of the security corridor we created on the Syrian border are finished, we will start new operations there. Karim Haas, a Moscow-based analyst focusing on Turkish-Russian relations, says the number one topic at the talks is likely to be Erdogan seeking assurance that Russia, which has troops in Syria, won't interfere with any Turkish offensive. So probably President Erdogan wants to get a green light or at least a yellow light from Moscow that, as you know, Russia mainly controls the airspace in northern Syria. Sinan Ulgin at the Istanbul-based Center for Politics and Foreign Policy Studies says Erdogan has also promised to send a million Syrian refugees back to their country. Ulgin says a cross-border operation could seek to lay the groundwork to get that process started. That region could also be used to facilitate or to incentivize the return of Syrian refugees, especially if some of the refugees hail from that region. So that's the second objective. But what would Russia hope to get out of this meeting? Ulgin says Putin will likely seek help for a Russian economy battered by Western sanctions over the invasion of Ukraine. In particular, he says, bilateral trade using domestic currencies instead of the dollar could be a boost for Moscow, whose banks were cut off from international payment systems. So far, Ulgin says Turkey has been remarkably persuasive in convincing its NATO allies that Turkey can't afford to alienate Russia by imposing sanctions as other countries have done. But he says Ankara has to perform a diplomatic balancing act. Of course, Turkey has to be careful that it should not create the perception that not only does Ankara not implement sanctions, but it should not be viewed as a country that helps Russia evade the sanctions. 
Analyst Karim Haas says watching Turkish forces launch an operation in Syria is not something that Moscow or the Syrian government wants to see. But Russia may decide not to actively oppose it. Of course, Russia will condemn in such a situation, diplomatically will condemn, but on the ground, Russia will not stand against Turkish military, in my opinion. He also says Moscow may calculate that a military operation would boost Erdogan's re-election chances next year, which Russia would likely prefer to a new opposition party government in Ankara. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. In 1975, a handshake in space kicked off an era of cooperation between unlikely partners. They're looking for us now. That's a Soviet cosmonaut greeting American astronauts on the Apollo-Soyuz mission when spacecraft from the Soviet Union and the U.S. docked in orbit. Decades later, the U.S. and Russia jointly built the International Space Station, an enduring symbol of global scientific collaboration in space. And now that long partnership may be coming to an end. Russia announced last week that it is planning to quit the program after 2024. Retired Air Force Colonel and NASA astronaut Terry Virts has commanded the ISS and spent over seven months in space. He joins us now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Elsa. Well, thanks for being with us. First, can I just ask you, what was it like working with Russian cosmonauts during your time on the ISS? You know, it was one of the highlights of my time in space. I tried to really have us be one crew. I didn't want the American segment and the Russian segment and not to see each other. So at night, I would take my dinner, put it in a Ziploc bag and float down the Russian segment. (laughs) And we had a great time. We listened to the radio. They told jokes. Um, They taught me a lot of Russian words that I didn't learn in class. Uh uh, (laughs) They called it they called it the cultural program. And, you know, I've, I've maintained a friendship with them. And it was probably my proudest accomplishment at NASA was was keeping that crew together during 2015 uh, when we were in space during Crimea and the Civil War and the sanctions and everything. You mentioned Crimea. Did that conflict in any way affect your relationship with your Russian crewmates? You know, we would acknowledge it when we would uh, finish a training program and the Russians kind of do things right. They would have a toasting session after the training was finished. We would say, look, politics is politics. We're going to just focus on our mission there was a lot of angst and conflict between America and Russia. Mm -hmm. And yet the space station was the one place. It was the one and only place. You could count on one finger the number of good international relations between the West and Russia, and that was the space station. Wow, the space station was literally above the fray. Literally and figuratively. I understand that the space station was designed specifically to be interdependent on each country's components, like the satellite needs Russian rockets. So how will Russia's departure affect operations, you think? Well, you you just nailed it. The one requirement of the space station is to have the Russian rockets. We decided 20 years ago to cancel our own propulsion module. And so the only real significant rockets right now, we could build some, I think, pretty quickly. But right now, we're dependent on the Russian rockets to maintain the station's orbit. And in the opening line, you said a Russian official recently announced, and I think that's the key to this whole discussion because Mm. Russian officials announce things all the time. Mm -hmm. And most of the time they're lying. Most of the time they change their mind. Oh, so you're still not sure that Russia will indeed leave the ISS. I have colleagues who have said, hey, don't worry. (laughs) So I don't know what's going to happen. I do know that you can't trust anything that comes from Russian officials. Uh, You know, they said they weren't going to invade Ukraine. They said they wouldn't kill civilians in Ukraine, and yet they've done these things. Right. What's Russia's next move in space, you think? They just don't have a lot of options. Either they 
kind of put their tail between their legs and say, we didn't really mean that. What we meant was blah, blah, blah. And they'll, <laughs> they'll kind of just try and stay on the ISS. If they leave the ISS, either they build their own space station, but that I don't think that's going to happen. They just won't get that done. Or they partner with the Chinese and a Russian-Chinese partnership is going to be a much, much different dynamic. The Chinese are going to be the boss in that partnership. You know, we've had a great partnership with Russia. We've treated them with respect. It's been an equal marriage, and that's not going to be the case with China. They're going to, their eyes are going to be opened when they have to deal with the Chinese. So they're in a corner. Yeah. It sounds like you think collaboration in space or the opportunity for collaboration in space is a powerful diplomatic tool. I would love to continue cooperating with the Russians. I have a lot of great friends in the Russian space program. Um, but I think for that to happen, they need to leave Ukraine and pay for the damage they've done in Ukraine. What we're doing right now by, by actively engaging with the Russians in space exploration, it, it's the equivalent of let's have an expedition to the Arctic in 1941 with Germany. And I don't think that's good. We, look, we don't allow the Chinese on the space station because of their egregious human rights records. And I don't know why we're promoting and growing our cooperation with, with Putin when he's uh, starting war in Europe. Retired Air Force Colonel and NASA astronaut Terry Virts, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 78 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, voters in Kansas are deciding today whether to amend the state's constitution and open the door to a more restrictive abortion laws in the future. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPAs, Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden moved today to secure access to abortion, signing an executive order allowing states that have not banned abortion to apply for Medicaid waivers to help them treat women from out of state. The executive action comes on the heels of a vote in the state of Kansas to reject a measure that would have led to serious restrictions on abortion. At the White House, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre spoke for the president. There have been big steps forward in the fight to protect our rights, but it's not the end of the fight. What's at stake here is a choice between a national abortion ban, as Republicans have already called for, and more radical attacks on fundamental rights versus standing up for the rights Americans have been entitled to for almost 50 years. The Biden executive order also stipulates that health care providers comply with federal non-discrimination laws. The killing of dozens of Ukrainian POWs involved in the defense of Mariupol came as a shock to many Ukrainians 
who have come to regard these soldiers as heroes. The Friday bombing in Russian-occupied territory has led to demands for a Red Cross investigation. NPR's Tim Mack reports from eastern Ukraine that the group has not been able to reach the site of the attack. The Red Cross says it had swiftly requested access to the prison where the POWs were killed. While the Russian government has said it had invited the aid group to visit the site, the group says it had not been given sufficient security guarantees to carry out the visit. The Red Cross also says that its offer to donate medical supplies remains unanswered, but that it would continue requesting access to the surviving prisoners of war and the places where the dead may have been taken. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kharkiv. On Wall Street at the close, the Dow was up 416 points at 32,812. The Nasdaq up 319. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Well, starting August 19th, the Orange Line will be shut down for a month so that the MBTA can make a series of repairs and upgrades in the wake of a year full of derailments, collisions, and safety incidents. State Transportation Secretary Jamie Tesler says he knows the shutdown will be an inconvenience, but it will make things better in the long run. The plan that he is announcing today is a win for our riders, allowing the MBTA to speed up the maintenance repair, replacement of track, signals, power systems, and other assets, bringing us one step closer to building a better T. Shuttle buses will replace trains during the shutdown. We'll have more on that shutdown in just a little bit here on All Things Considered. A new hotline is up and running for people in the state to call and report acts of hate. People can call the End Hate Now hotline to report actual hate crimes, potential hate crimes, or concerns about people who may be espousing such views. The number is one 634 8669 and callers can remain anonymous. The number was established by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts following several recent incidents of hateful graffiti and demonstrations by hate groups in the Boston area. The National Weather Service says a heat advisory will take effect tomorrow and Friday with hot weather and humidity on the way. It's expected to feel like it's over 100 degrees the next two days. Worcester and Boston will have air-conditioned municipal buildings open for people to cool down. More than 100 employers in Greater Boston will share millions of dollars from the federal government to expand job training. The Commerce Department announced today it'll spend $23 million of pandemic relief money on workforce development in Greater Boston. The focus will be on careers in health care, child care, and clean energy. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The low's around 70 degrees. Tomorrow's going to be sunny and hot. High around 99 degrees. The heat index will make it feel a lot hotter. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. 
and from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The voters of Kansas have spoken, with nearly 59 percent of them voting to keep abortion legal in the state. Now, this issue was on yesterday's ballot and closely watched throughout the country, in part because Kansas is the first state to vote on abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade earlier this summer. For a sense of how a state as conservative as Kansas ended up with this result, we're turning now to Dave Helling, editorial writer and columnist for the Kansas City Star. Welcome. Great to be with you, Elsa. Well, it's great to have you. So I want to first start with the results. Um, What have you been hearing about why voters wanted to keep abortion legal in your state? Talking to people who voted no, which was the pro-choice side, There was a common theme of trying to keep the government out of this extraordinarily important decision first. And second, there was real fear after the Supreme Court discarded Roe versus Wade that states like Kansas would indeed impose very strict restrictions on the uh, abortion procedure. And that was something they simply weren't interested in. And we should be clear about the geography of the vote here, because, I mean, I guess you would assume this referendum would have been mostly won in the Democratic areas of the state. But even in counties where Trump won, the referendum lost. Why do you think that is? Well, first, let's be clear. There aren't many uh, Democratic areas in Kansas, Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. It's It's a very Republican state. Uh, a couple of pockets of urban votes, but by and large, for most of its uh, you know, recent history, it's been very Republican, hasn't elected a, a Democratic senator in right. almost 100 years. And so it was a surprise in some ways that some of the more rural counties where we expected uh, a 70-30 vote for yes turned out to be closer to maybe 60-40 or 55-45 which reflects the fact that a lot of Republicans, maybe 80 or 90,000 votes, decided to uh, endorse the no position uh, and uh, guarantee abortion rights in Kansas. Mm -hmm. That is a surprise. Mm -hmm. And there's a message there for the Republican Party that even some of its own members are more friendly to abortion rights maybe uh, than, than most people believe. Well, your editorial board which you're a member on, um, it was pretty Mm -hmm. clear in its writing, and that is, quote, in a stunning display of common sense, Kansas voters Tuesday overwhelmingly rejected a constitutional amendment that would have put abortion policy completely in the hands of the legislature and the governor. And then it goes on to say that those who voted no chose to, quote, trust women. But Given the Republican-led legislature, this issue is not going to be over in Kansas anytime soon. So what do you think comes next? Indeed, the legislature is likely to come back in January uh, and try again, in part because the Supreme Court in 2019 did not say that abortion could be unregulated in Kansas, the state Supreme Court. Instead, it said that you have to meet the highest level of scrutiny, but if you can meet that level... You can still have restrictions, and I think the Republicans in the legislature will try to test that theory, and then we're just in for battles in the courts. Before I let you go, I know that you have covered politics in Kansas for what, something like more than 40 years? A long time. A long time. (laughs) So last night's results on this ballot issue, I mean, in the long view that you have, how striking is this moment to you? 
Well, not so much. You know, one of the first politicians I ever covered from Kansas was Nancy Kassebaum, who was a senator for three terms. Mm -hmm. She was a Republican. She was pro-choice. There was a time, Kansas, in the 80s and, and early 90s, when abortion politics were much more complicated that a Republican could be pro-choice and still win election. And so in the contemporary environment, it is surprising. Over the long sweep of Kansas history, it's perhaps not as surprising. There has been and continues to be a little bit of a libertarian streak, which we saw 30 or 40 years ago and seemed to rear its head again in 2022. A libertarian streak saying, government, don't make my decisions for me. Correct. And, and in this election, the no vote supporters did a pretty good job of framing the vote exactly that way, that this is a vote about freedom and equality and women's rights, and not so much about abortion itself. And I think they succeeded in making that argument, and we saw the results. Dave Helling of the Kansas City Star, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Hollywood observers are shocked at the amount of money Warner Brothers Discovery seems willing to burn. The nearly finished film Batgirl will not be released. Here's NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiolkas. The film had originally been planned to cost $75 million. But with COVID-related delays, it had already rocketed up to $90 million. And Batgirl meant a lot, says Adam B. Vary. He's a senior entertainment writer at the trade publication Variety. Not only was it meaningful to have Leslie Grace, a Latina actress, lead the film, but... This is work that, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people spent many, many months of their lives working on. This movie also had one of the first trans characters based on a trans character that's in the comic books, played by a trans actor. Michael Keaton is was returning to play Batman in this movie. So it really was seen by the fandom with a certain degree of excitement. In a statement reported by multiple media sources, a Warner Brothers spokesperson wrote, the decision to not release Batgirl reflects our leadership's strategic shift as it relates to the DC Universe and HBO Max. Leslie Grace is an incredibly talented actor, and this decision is not a reflection of her performance. Warner Brothers has not replied to requests from NPR for comment. On Tuesday, Variety reported the shift was due to a change in strategy. The former studio chief had scheduled Batgirl and all of Warner Brothers' other films to be released only on streaming on HBO Max because of the pandemic. Earlier this year, a new CEO came in and reversed that decision, but also apparently decided that Batgirl just wasn't a big-scaled, tentpole action film that would succeed at the box office. Adam B. Vary says, The Warner Brothers Discovery leadership decided that they would essentially write off Batgirl, that instead of releasing it on HBO Max, they could clean up their ledger, their debt ledger, by writing it off. When the Batgirl news first broke, it was via the New York Post. The newspaper's entertainment critic, Johnny Alexinski, says his source blamed poor audience response to a rough-cut screening. It did test poorly. It tested in the 30s, which, as anybody knows, if you test in the 30s, you fail math and have to redo eighth grade. A Batgirl is a lousy movie. But Alexinski adds there are plenty of lousy movies that may get to theaters. We have to acknowledge that uh, Val Kilmer in a nippled bat suit by Joel Schumacher made it to our screens. 
over at Universal, the movie Cats made it to our screen. They weren't shelved and they were probably very aware they weren't going to make any money and lose a bunch of money and be embarrassed. Meanwhile, on an Instagram story today, Leslie Grace posted a clip of someone lip syncing. The song, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is All Things Considered on WBUR. I'm Steve Brown, in for Lisa Mullins. The MBTA will shut down Orange Line service for a month, beginning in mid-August. Governor Charlie Baker and T officials announced the shutdown earlier today as a way to speed up repairs that the line needs. Reporter Laura Craigle joins us now. Laura, welcome. Hi, Steve. Thanks. So what exactly is being shut down, for how long, and for why? Well, the Orange Line train service will be shut down starting 9 p.m. on August 19th all the way through September 19th at 5 a.m. And that will be the whole line from Oak Grove and Malden all the way to Forest Hills in Jamaica Plain. The MBTA's general manager, Steve Poftak, says the purpose is to speed up the pace of needed repairs. Um, And here's what he said at a press conference this afternoon. This is an unprecedented service diversion for the MBTA. We have never shut down an entire line in this way in order to make sweeping improvements. But we're doing this because it's it's the fastest, most efficient way to deliver the benefits to our customers. And so the T will make repairs like replacing track and ties, upgrading signals, and rolling out new trains as well. Without doing the shutdown, officials said the repairs that they plan to finish over this month would have taken five years. And of course, officials were asked if it'll really take 30 days, and Poftech says they've built in enough of a cushion that they think it will get done in that time. Well, what will be done to try to help passengers get around during the shutdown? It sounds like the main replacement for all the passengers who normally take the Orange Line will be shuttle bus service. The T's board approved a $37 million contract just this morning to use a Yankee Line buses. Um, So that'll be up to 200 free shuttle buses operating. Additionally, the T is encouraging riders to use the commuter rail instead. Uh, The commuter rail runs along a similar route to the Orange Line, though it doesn't connect through downtown Boston the way the Orange Line does. Um, And while the shutdown is underway, officials say your regular old Charlie card will work on Zones 1, 1A, and 2, which overlap with the areas served by the Orange Line. Uh, On top of that, they are even encouraging folks who are able to to work from home. And it's worth noting that the MBTA data shows the Orange Line has the second highest ridership in the system, uh, only behind the Red Line. Hmm. Now, thousands of of T-riders will be affected by this. How are folks reacting to the news of the shutdown? I spoke to a couple Orange Line riders today at Wellington Station, and they were both very concerned about whether they're going to be able to get to work on time. Here's Rui Tashida. He's a Somerville resident who rides the Orange Line regularly. Well, that's pretty detrimental. I have, uh, I I work two jobs, and I have about an hour to commute in between, and it's already very on the on the the dime. With the shutdown, Tashida says it's going to be even tougher to get to his second job on time, and he's going to have to talk to his boss and see if maybe they need to make some changes to his schedule. Uh, that said, he does really, really want faster and more reliable Orange Line service as a regular rider, and if the shutdown can help make it happen, he'd be happy. So, Laura, stepping back, how did we get to the point of this drastic step being needed? Well, the MBTA has been having high-profile problem after high-profile problem for a while now, especially over the past year. A green line collision last summer, derailments, a crossing signal malfunction that led to a woman's death, a man who was dragged to death by a red line train, to, to name a few. 
Um, the spring, the Federal Transit Administration began looking into the MBTA's operations um, and said in a letter to the T that it was extremely concerned with the ongoing safety issues. The Orange Line has had issues with some of its cars. I'm sure you remember when the train caught fire a couple weeks ago. Um, the T says the shutdown will allow them to roll out new trains on the line, and so the vast majority of them will be new after the work's done. And what's more, the T says it should be able to lift a number of speed limits that are currently in place on the Orange Line to make the service faster. Uh, the T's general manager, Steve Poftak, says the T received directives from the FTA to accelerate those critical track upgrades, and he says they've heard from riders that they just want the service to be better. We've heard them loud and clear that they want bold action to improve the MBTA at the pace they deserve. And we know that we can't wait. So part of this shutdown is about not waiting. It is about making the necessary improvements and making them now. So we'll have to see if this satisfies T passengers and the feds. The FTA is expected to put out its report on the MBTA sometime later this month. Okay, thank you very much. WBUR's Laura Craigle. Thanks. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a plan in Saudi Arabia to demolish old, poorer neighborhoods in the city of Jeddah to be replaced by luxury high-rises and entertainment venues has sparked rare, widespread criticism in a country where dissent is risky. Coming to City Space on Monday, August 15th, a primary debate with the Republican candidates for Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org events. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow's going to be sunny and hot. The high is around 99 degrees. However, the heat index will make it feel a few degrees hotter. Partly sunny with a chance of showers and thunderstorms on Friday. The highs will be around 96 degrees. Partly sunny and near 90 degrees on Saturday. Chance of showers in the midday. Mostly sunny and 92 degrees on Sunday. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. Gentle Dental, helping you get the dental care you need when you need it. Learn more about teeth whitening for new patients this summer at gentledental.com. And Porter Square Books, Boston Edition. Events, book recommendations, story hours, and more in the Seaport District. PorterSquareBooks.com. Back to school season is on its way, and for many teens, that means early mornings. I have to get up at 5.30 in the morning and then catch the bus while it's pitch black outside. The typical teen body clock and the typical school start time are out of sync, so California is pushing back the start of the high school day. Other districts already have. Did it work? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We often report on Saudi Arabia's role in the world in global politics. Well, today we have a story about a local issue which reveals something about how the kingdom works. In the second largest city, Jeddah, old neighborhoods are being demolished to make way for luxury high-rises and entertainment venues. It's part of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's $20 billion plan to attract tourism and wealthy foreigners. Hundreds of thousands of people will be displaced. And even though dissent in Saudi Arabia can be risky, NPR's Fatma Tanis went to Jeddah and met some of those people. In a crumbling neighborhood in the south of Jeddah, an old woman is waiting for a ride under the sun. Her face is covered except for her eyes and nose. 
She declines to give her name out of fear of the government. Life is good, she says. Everything is good. But the demolition has brought us pain. All around, there are signs this neighborhood will be gone. Others nearby have already been entirely razed, and many more like this one are next. Rows of houses and shops are marked with a word in red spray paint, ikhla, Arabic for evacuate. It's how the government lets people know they need to leave, and quickly. Most people only get a week's notice, and in some neighborhoods, just 24 hours. And a lot of those being displaced are working class people from immigrant communities. Nearby is a crowded coffee house frequented by immigrants from Sudan. Inside, there are two large bubbling pots of Sudanese coffee in a corner. It's a strong brew mixed with lots of ginger. I meet Hassan, who only gave me his first name so he can speak freely. Speaking out against the government plan can get people in trouble here. This is the place for everyone to come after a long day of work. You'll find Sudanese coffee, Sudanese food nearby, a Sudanese tailor, and even a Sudanese friend to talk to. Everything is cheap and everyone is friendly. But this coffee shop is expected to be demolished. And Hassan has already had his home destroyed a few months ago. Soon, he's going to have to move again. Because the area where the demolitions are taking place is massive. 60 neighborhoods have been affected. That's the equivalent of 13,000 soccer fields, according to satellite imagery calculations by Amnesty International. Hassan says his old neighborhood was one of the first to undergo demolition. And it was a big surprise. 24 hours after me and my neighbors received the evacuation notice, our electricity and water services were cut off. Some families slept outside for days before they could figure out where to go next. It all happened suddenly. Jeddah is a major cultural and commercial city. It's also a gateway to the Muslim holy city of Mecca. It's by far the most diverse city in the kingdom and also more socially liberal. Many of its foreign national residents came to the country for pilgrimage in Mecca decades ago and have settled here. On the one hand, Hassan thinks this area desperately needed fixing. The streets are dirty and narrow, and basic government services are lacking. On the other hand, this has had a devastating effect on a marginalized community. This was our last chance to be a community together and to enjoy our culture. From now on, there will only be work and home. Nowhere else for us to go. With the government moving ahead at dizzying speeds, soon this area will be filled with luxury high-rises, hotels, parks, an opera house, aquarium and museums. This is part of what Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has named Vision 2030, plan to open up the country and diversify its economy. The government hopes to draw tourism and wealthy expatriates. It puts the number of those displaced at 500,000. Some say it could be a million. That's about a third of the city's population. Dana Ahmed, researcher on Saudi Arabia for Amnesty International in Beirut, says it's all in line with the crown prince's top-down approach to reform at any cost to the people. Saudi Arabia is trying to build a new image of itself on the backs of citizens and residents uh, and their rights being violated. 
Ahmed says officials failed to give adequate notice to residents, even though they knew the plan months ahead. The scale and manner in which it's all happening has been so upsetting to residents that... It was the first time we see a general public uproar uh, in Saudi Arabia about an issue like this that's en masse online. Jeddah officials did not grant NPR an interview for the story. But Ahmed says that after the public outcry, the government offered compensation for evictions, but only for Saudi citizens. She says foreign nationals like the Sudanese immigrants make up nearly half of the people affected, but they will get nothing. A few miles away from the Sudanese coffee house, 53-year-old Ibrahim is moving out of the home he's lived in for over a decade. Again, we're only using his first name so he can speak freely. Ibrahim just received a notice to evacuate, and he's got seven days before utilities are cut off. His teenage sons carry their belongings out of the house and load them onto a pickup truck. It's dusty and windy out, so we sit in the car to chat. Ten years, he says, ten years of life, friendships, neighbors, all gone now. The short evacuation notice from the government has left people with very limited options, and apartments in Jeddah are now in short supply, which means rent prices are sky high. No one can afford these prices. No one. Many of my friends and neighbors left the city completely and moved to smaller towns in the south and east. As a Saudi national, Ibrahim will receive compensation in the amount of one year's rent. So he'll move to a different neighborhood for now, but he knows he won't be able to afford it after the year ends. This whole ordeal has been difficult on his children too, who've lost their community and their friends. We are all suffering. My children even told me they don't want to live in Jeddah anymore, and we should move to our village in the south. But he says their village is in a mountainous area with limited access to schools, and he wants his kids to go to college. We'll just have to be patient, he says, and maybe God will make it easier. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, 
working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. That will raise tensions across the strait. It will create risks and challenges, uh, we think, unnecessarily. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reacts to China's announcement that it will conduct live-fire military drills near Taiwan. It's Wednesday, August 3rd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, more on the fallout from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Also, Idaho's Supreme Court heard arguments today in lawsuits against the state's abortion laws. Yesterday, the Biden administration sued over one of those laws as well. And gasoline prices have fallen sharply and are now below $4 a gallon in many parts of the country. But analysts warn that prices could tick up again if drivers set aside their newfound gas-saving habits. Get set for some hot, muggy weather. It's 5.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says the outcome of a ballot question in Kansas sends a powerful signal the majority of Americans continue to support abortion rights. It follows a Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the president signed another executive order today aimed at safeguarding access to the procedure. The latest executive order directs the Department of Health and Human Services to come up with ways to protect those who are forced to cross state line to have an abortion. Biden says laws banning or severely restricting abortion go beyond the right to choose. There are a lot of women who take prescriptions prescribed by their doctors and have been taking for some time for other conditions, for arthritis, for epilepsy, for Crohn's disease. And in many cases, these prescriptions are not being filled. Legislation that would have guaranteed the right to travel out of state to seek abortions failed to pass the Senate last month after Republicans blocked the measure. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington. In eastern Kentucky, where the death toll from last week's flood stands at 37, thousands are still without electricity and running water. Karen Zarf, member station WUKY, reports the number of power outages has been cut in half since yesterday. But Kentucky's Governor Andy Bashir says water remains a big challenge. As the floodwaters in eastern Kentucky dissipate, the damage to infrastructure is becoming clear. Above ground, the force of the water swept away buildings and snapped power lines. Underground, it caused roads to buckle and damaged water lines. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir says that damage ranges from minor repairs to entire piping systems being, quote, wiped out, leaving communities without running water. Some may get it in days, some may get it in weeks, and some areas it may even be months. As far as travel, Bashir says many bridges and some county roads still need repairs and are closed, but state roads are all clear. For NPR News, I'm Karen Zarr in Lexington. Amid signs of falling gas prices and some decline in oil prices as well, the industry cartel OPEC is apparently ready to change production targets next month. OPEC announcing today will boost production in September by 100,000 barrels a day. That's well below the 648,000 barrels a day increase in output planned for this month's 
and last. Patrick DeHaan is an oil industry analyst with GasBuddy.com and says it's disappointing for consumers. It would be akin to uh, uh, every day providing uh, enough oil for the global economy uh, for about six hours um, of, of consumption at one refinery. So it's, it's, it's a very, very, very small amount. The announcement comes despite a visit to Saudi Arabia last month by President Biden, in which he sought to encourage more oil production from the cartel to help bring down prices at the pump. A strong wa- rally on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 416 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA will shut down the Orange Line in its entirety for 30 days starting later this month. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says it will allow crews to work around the clock, making critical repairs to the system, including the rails. The shutdown comes after the Federal Transit Administration launched a safety inspection following a series of derailments, collisions and other incidents on the T. The line will be shut down from the evening of August 19th through September 18th. Shuttle buses will be provided during that time. Incoming Boston Public School Superintendent Mary Skipper says the month-long Orange Line shutdown will have a significant impact on students and staff when classes begin back on September 8th. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, she says district leaders are beginning to look into workarounds. Helping the Boston school community navigate the closure is one of many tasks the incoming superintendent is working on this summer. Skipper says the start date of the project was beyond the district's control, but officials are working hard to make sure everyone can get to school on time. It's new information. We need some time to analyze it, but we've started already. We have to look at it from not only the student and the family, but also the staff so that our classrooms are staffed properly. Skipper adds she'll also prioritize building strong academic programming and reestablishing trust with families when she officially begins as BPS superintendent on September 26th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The city of Boston has declared a heat emergency beginning tomorrow and running through Sunday. Temperatures are expected to reach into the 90s during that time, with the heat index likely over 100 degrees tomorrow and Friday. 16 Boston centers for youth and family community centers will be open from 9 until 5, as places where people or residents can cool off. Democratic candidates for Massachusetts state auditor are making the case to voters. Both candidates faced off in a debate today on WBUR's Radio Boston. WBUR's Sydney Bowles reports each is vowing they are the best person to keep state agencies accountable and transparent. Former Assistant Transportation Secretary Chris Dempsey emphasized his experience in state government and as co-founder of the campaign against hosting the Olympics in Boston. We went up against corporate industries and titans who are pushing a wasteful Olympic bid that would have cost all of us $15 billion. State Senator Diana DiZaglio drew on her legislative experience and emphasized how the auditor can pursue social and environmental justice. Every penny saved is another penny that goes into initiatives such as fighting for environmental justice, fighting against climate change. The two candidates will face off in a September 6th primary. The winning candidate will almost certainly face Republican Anthony Amore in November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. The forecast mostly clear tonight. The lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow is going to be sunny and hot. Highs around 99 degrees. The heat index will make it feel a few degrees warmer. Partly sunny with a chance of showers and thunderstorms on Friday. The highs around 96. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Just outside the main gates to the White House, this is just outside the West Wing, we are about to cross through this gate. I'm going to bring you with me. We're here to meet the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, who it is fair to say is having a busy week. I had been asking for a while for a sit-down with the National Security Advisor to talk about the war in Ukraine. But then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi decided to pay a visit to Taiwan, and a U.S. drone strike took out al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul. So we are going to try to get to all three of those today. Jake Sullivan, good to see you. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Let's dive in on Taiwan. Is everybody here at the White House breathing a sigh of relief that Pelosi has left and World War III has not broken out yet? Well, the Chinese have announced that they are going to conduct a series of military activities around Taiwan uh, over the course of the next few days. And that will raise tensions across the strait. Uh, And so what we are hopeful for is that uh, the PRC acts responsibly and avoids the kind of escalation that could lead to a mistake or miscalculation in the air around the seas. Uh, That is the message that we're sending to China. That's the message we're also coordinating with uh, our friends in Taiwan. How risky a situation does that create? Look, whenever a military engages in a series of activities to include the possibility of missile tests, of live fire exercises, of uh, fighter uh, jets buzzing around the skies, the possibility of some kind of incident is real. And Uh, We believe that what China is doing here is not responsible. We believe that it is um, escalating tensions unnecessarily. And this is particularly so because what the speaker did in visiting Taiwan is not unprecedented. It is not threatening to China. What we don't want to see is China trying to twist this into a crisis or use this as a pretext to take the kind of military activity that will ultimately destabilize the Taiwan Strait. Setting aside this particular visit, big picture, may I invite you to clarify what U.S. policy on Taiwan is? Specifically, will the U.S. get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Because President Biden says that is the commitment that's been made. Well, our policy has not changed. It is rooted in the one China policy informed by the three joint communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act and the six assurances. But forgive me, y'all keep saying the policy hasn't changed, even as President Biden um, commits to a policy that would represent a significant policy change. Well, the president himself has said the policy has not changed. The president is the commander in chief. He's the guy who sets the policy and he has said has not changed. And we have communicated that very directly. He has said that publicly on the record. And to the question of the kind of military contingency you're talking about, it is the entire object and purpose of our approach to ensure that that never happens, that it never comes to that. And that is what we are going to keep working to ensure. We move to to Afghanistan and the drone strike on Zawahiri. There's a picture beginning to come together of what unfolded that U.S. intelligence was tracking his family, and that enabled the tracking of Zawahiri himself. This was a this was a CIA drone. 
So I'm not going to get into the specifics of the branch of our or the the agency of our government. Administration officials have said that on background. I don't know if you would put it on the record. All I will say is that our counterterrorism professionals and our intelligence professionals played a central role in carrying out this successful operation at the president's direction. Uh, And he credited them in the public remarks he made for their incredible skill and, and capacity in pulling this thing off. Where did the drone fly in from? Again, I'm not going to get into those kinds of operational details. I think it's important that we be able to preserve the space to continue to operate effectively, to demonstrate, as the president promised the American people a year ago, that we would maintain the ability to take out terrorists even without thousands of American forces on the ground. We did that once. We're prepared to do it again. Um, The White House released a picture of President Biden in the Situation Room on July 1st, I believe, and he was being briefed um, by, looked like you, you could see Bill Burns, the CIA director, briefing him. Was there any dissent around that table? Anybody who thought this is a bad idea? No. There was a, a unanimous support among his senior national security team to take this action at the point in time when uh, the intelligence community briefed the president that they had high confidence that this was Awahiri and that they could do it in a way that they felt uh, would not result in civilian casualties. To step back, the U.S., of course, went into Afghanistan in the first place to take out al-Qaeda leadership after 9-11, and then fought for 20 years to keep al-Qaeda from reestablishing a base there. And now Zawahiri and his family turn up in the middle of downtown Kabul. I mean, what does that say about what the U.S. achieved over two decades in Afghanistan? Well, it actually, the record when it comes to our disruption of the Al-Qaeda network and its capacity to threaten America and Americans is a record of significant success. Our ability to ensure over the course of decades that the kinds of complex plots that led to the embassy bombings in Nairobi and in Tanzania in 1998, that led to the USS Cole in 2000, and then, of course, to 9-11 in 2001, that we have not seen those kind of plots over the course of the past two decades be carried out against the U.S. homeland. That is a record of significant success. What Although the president- if you and I had been sitting here in 2001, late 2001, and I had told you that in 2022, the Taliban would be running Afghanistan again, and Ayman al-Zawahiri would be living in Kabul. Would you believe me? Well, what I would tell you is that Ayman al-Zawahiri became the emir of al-Qaeda in 2011 when Osama bin Laden was taken off the battlefield. That was more than a decade ago. For a decade, American men and women fought and died in Afghanistan, and Zawahiri was alive and running al-Qaeda. Joe Biden took the United States out of Afghanistan so that in the year 2022, not one American soldier died in Afghanistan and Ayman al-Zawahiri is dead. I would call that a pretty effective policy. Is there a scenario in which the Taliban didn't know? didn't know he was there? We believe that senior members of the Haqqani Network, who are now part of the Taliban entity running the government in Kabul, that, um, that they knew. We also believe that there were other senior Taliban officials who did not know. And in fact, uh, you know, we will now watch to see the extent to which this raises questions within 
the organization of the Taliban about the wisdom of having Zawahiri come back into Kabul. Oh, interesting. So you're watching for possible fractures or divisions in the Taliban? Yeah, I don't want to go so far as to say fracture, but you know, certainly this is going to raise some eyebrows, we believe, uh, within the leadership. Ukraine. Um, so something about the kind of week you're having that that is the third item I need to ask you about as the National Security Advisor. Um, the first green ship to depart Ukraine since Russia invaded arrived in Turkish waters. It's been cleared to go on to Lebanon. How encouraged should we be? Well, we should be encouraged because it does mean that the possibility of uh, substantial amounts of wheat and corn and other grains getting out of, Afghan uh, out of Afghanistan, out of Ukraine, um, is a real possibility. But we should also be cautious because uh, there is every reason to believe the Russians are going to make this as difficult as possible and that they are going to continue to find ways to disrupt the flow of grain to the world market. And so we think that the international community has to maintain a substantial amount of pressure on Moscow not to enforce a blockade, not to throw up obstacles uh, to the flow of that grain, because it is so important to feed the world, to keep prices down, and to ensure that there's not hunger and famine in Africa and Southeast Asia and in other places. The relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine, is there deep mistrust between the White House and President Zelensky? Are you concerned about Ukraine's leadership? I'm asking because Tom Friedman of the New York Times, who tends to be well-sourced, wrote about that in his column this week. It's caused a lot of commentary. Is it true? I mean, you just have to listen to President Biden when he talks about President Zelensky. He openly admires President Zelensky, admires his courage, his bravery, his skill. They have incredibly constructive and effective communication. And then at all levels of the government, we are deeply engaged. And so this is a very strong partnership. So you're not concerned about Ukraine's leadership, for the record? Uh, for the record, I believe that Ukraine's leadership is leading a country in an incredibly effective and brave way against the onslaught of an invading neighbor defying all expectations about what they would be able to hold together and stand up against. And, and it's been an incredibly impressive thing to watch. Last question. We're about to come up to the six-month anniversary of the Russian invasion. Six months from now, so February 2023, where would you put the chances that there's still active war in Ukraine, um, that there's any kind of off-ramp away from what constantly seems to get described now as this grinding conflict. That's the word you always hear. Grinding conflict headed toward a stalemate. I'm not going to make predictions about six months from now, uh, because I think most of us wouldn't have predicted we'd be where we are today six months ago. We did accurately predict that Russia would invade, but how exactly that invasion would unfold is subject to so many variables, and that's true for the six months that lie ahead of us. What I will say is this. Russia could end this war tomorrow if they simply withdrew from the territory that they have tried to conquer by force, which is against every precept of international law. And so Putin could end this thing very rapidly. Our job as the United States is to put Ukraine in the best possible position on the battlefield so that it will end up in the best possible position at the negotiating table. When can we get serious negotiations going? That is an open question because at the moment it does not seem the Russians are serious about the kind of diplomacy that actually could bring about an end to this conflict. That is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 78 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, Idaho's Supreme Court heard arguments today in lawsuits against the state's abortion laws. On Tuesday, the Biden administration sued over one of those laws as well. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering part-time and evening accelerated degree completion. Earn an affordable bachelor's in computer science or management studies in just two years. Learn more at bu.edu met. In business news, Cambridge-based Alnylam Pharmaceuticals is reporting promising results from a clinical trial for a drug to treat a form of heart disease. The company said today the trial showed its treatment helped improve heart function and walking ability for people with the condition. The drug is already approved for use to treat nerve disease. The company plans to ask regulators to clear it for expanded use so it can be given to people with heart disease. Wall Street stocks were higher today. The Dow finished up. One and a quarter percent, or 416 points, at 32,812. NASDAQ rose two and a half percent, or 319 points, at 12,668. And the S&P 500 up one and a half percent, or 64 points, to close at 41.55. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And The Cabot, presenting Grammy-winning master trumpeter and composer Chris Boaty, Friday, August 12th at 8 p.m. Tickets at thecabot.org. Mostly clear tonight, the lows around 70. Tomorrow's going to be sunny and hot. The high will be around 99 degrees. The heat index will make it feel a few degrees hotter. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Yesterday, for the first time since Roe v. Wade was overturned, the Biden administration filed a lawsuit against a state over its abortion ban. This was in Idaho. Separately, Idaho's Supreme Court heard arguments today against the ban, arguments that were filed by abortion rights advocates earlier this year. Here to explain all these legal actions is James Dawson with Boise State Public Radio. Welcome. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so Idaho has multiple laws restricting abortion rights, some of the strictest in the country. So which law exactly is the Justice Department challenging here? Right. So Idaho legislators passed this law right at the onset of the pandemic in 2020, kind of anticipating that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade, which it did in June, and it would ban nearly all abortions except in cases of rape, incest, and when the life of the mother is threatened. So Planned Parenthood sued to block the law just a few days after that high court decision as part of a blitz of legal action across the country. And it's pretty pressing here because the clock is ticking in Idaho. Uh, That law is set to take effect on August 25th. Okay, and explain the Justice Department's argument as to why this law has to be struck down. 
Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Idaho ban conflicts with a federal law that requires hospitals uh, receiving Medicare dollars to treat patients with significant health issues. If a patient comes into the emergency room with a medical emergency, jeopardizing the patient's life or health, the hospital must provide the treatment necessary to stabilize that patient. And he says that includes treatments like abortions for fetal complications. Right. Okay, so... The Justice Department files that lawsuit in federal court. Meanwhile, today, Idaho's state Supreme Court heard arguments against this same law, right? Is that correct? Yep, that is. Uh, So Planned Parenthood and a physician in the case argued it should be struck down on three grounds. Uh, Number one, that there's a right to privacy in the state constitution to allow people to make their own medical decisions. Number two, that the law discriminates based on someone's sex. And then the third is that the law is too vague. And specifically, they say lawmakers here didn't define at what point the life of the mother is threatened, uh, not to mention that the exceptions for rape and incest require filing a police report and then giving a copy of that to your doctor. But those reports aren't available until an investigation is closed, which could take months or years. Exactly. Okay, and did the hearing today in state Supreme Court tell us anything about how the state of Idaho plans to defend its abortion ban? Yeah, Idaho's Republican governor and attorney general rejected all of the arguments Planned Parenthood and the other plaintiff made immediately after they filed suit. They say that the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken and states can regulate abortions as they see fit. And they want the Idaho Supreme Court to do completely dismiss the lawsuit against both the overall ban and another law similar to uh, one first enacted in Texas. Right. That's a law that allows people to report someone who gets an abortion and then they sue. They can sue that person in civil court. Yeah, and Idaho's law would allow anyone related to a person getting an abortion to sue the doctor who performs it for a minimum of $20,000. It aims to block most abortions after six weeks, but that law is currently blocked until the state Supreme Court rules otherwise. So do we have any idea when we might get rulings either from the state Supreme Court in Idaho or in this federal lawsuit? Yeah, not really. I mean, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland is asking the judge to permanently block the strictest ban, and the federal court hasn't said anything in response to that suit filed yesterday. And as for Idaho's Supreme Court, the justices can take as much time as they want, but I've seen them rule in a few weeks in, you know, expedited cases like this. That is James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio. Thank you, James. Thank you. In an Austin courtroom today, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones admitted that the Sandy Hook school shooting, the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history, was, quote, 100 percent real. Some of the surviving Newtown parents are suing Jones for death threats and harassment that they have endured because of the lies he broadcast. And there were some shocking moments in this defamation trial today. NPR's John Burnett is covering it from Austin. Hey, John. Hi, Ari. Things are getting really intense in this trial. A lot of people here in the newsroom in D.C. were talking about it today. What happened this afternoon? Where do I start? Uh, Let's see. The attorney for the parents who were suing Jones for damages accused him of perjury. What happened was um, Alex Jones said earlier he didn't have any text messages that mentioned Sandy Hook. But the plaintiff's lawyer, Mark Bankston, said Jones's lawyers mistakenly turned over to him a large quantity of Jones's cell phone records, and there are lots of mentions of Sandy Hook. Mistakenly turned over, didn't intend to, accidentally sent it to the opposing yeah. lawyers. So here's how it went down in court. The voice you'll hear is Attorney Bankston while Jones is on the stand looking flummoxed. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years. And Bankston concludes, and then you hear Jones. 
And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text messages about Sandy Hook. Did you know that? I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. A Perry Mason moment. All right, what else did Alex Jones say when he took the stand under oath? Well, Jones' attorney asked him if he now understands that it was, quote, absolutely irresponsible to say that the Sandy Hook shooting was a hoax staged by the federal government. Jones agreed that it was. He said he'd already conceded on his program that the massacre did happen. Real children were killed. But he said the mainstream media won't let me take it back. Well, when he is not in the courtroom, what has Jones been saying on his InfoWars program about this trial? Yeah, Ari, instead of toning it down during the trial, InfoWars seems to be going on the offensive. Uh, Jones wants to show his devoted followers that he won't back down. Today, the plaintiff's attorney played a video of a recent InfoWars broadcast, and it seemed to attack the presiding judge, Maya Gamble. Before she was a judge, she was a lawyer for CPS, Texas Child Protective Services, which has had its share of problems. Judge Maya Gamble comes from CPS, who has been exposed for human trafficking and working with pedophiles. And one more thing, Ari. Jones also said on InfoWars, the jurors in his trial don't know what planet they're on. Uh, Let's see if uh, that comes back to haunt him tomorrow. And what's going to happen next in this trial? Well, it goes to the jury tomorrow. Uh, Jones' whole defense has been that the First Amendment allows him to question not just the facts of Sandy Hook, but other major news events from the September 11 attacks to the moon landing. But the attorney for the parents said, speech is free, but you have to pay for your lives for the harm you've caused. He said InfoWars has put profits over the well-being of the Sandy Hook parents And those parents are seeking up to $150 million in damages for what the father said was nine and a half years of hell they lived through. And here's a postscript to the newsy day, Ari. Um, Rolling Stone reported today that the January 6th House Committee is preparing to request the trove of Jones text messages and emails that were revealed in this trial. Uh, Alex Jones was a huge Donald Trump supporter, and he was at the U.S. Capitol that day. That is NPR's John Burnett covering that Alex Jones trial in Austin, Texas. Thanks, John. You bet, Ari. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is speaking at CPAC this week, not long after delivering a speech in Europe that's been called a Nazi diatribe. He's fighting for an old white world or old white Europe where men were men and women were women. Why Orban's visit to the U.S. is welcomed by some and criticized by others. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. 21-year-old Robert Cremo III pleaded not guilty in a Lake County, Illinois courtroom one month after the shooting deaths of seven people at an Independence Day parade in suburban Chicago. Chip Mitchell of member station WBEZ reports. In a courtroom upstairs here, Robert Cremo III appeared in a dark blue jail jumpsuit and a light blue surgical mask, his hands cuffed to a thick leather belt. The judge read the possible penalties for each of the 117 counts Cremo faces and asked if he understood. He answered yes. Prosecutors have made it clear they're seeking a sentence of natural life in prison. They say Cremo used a semi-automatic rifle and confessed to firing three 30-round magazines from a roof above the parade. They say he killed seven people and wounded another 48. The judge set the next court date for November 1st. For NPR News, I'm Chip Mitchell in Lake County, Illinois. The Kennedy Space Center in Florida is preparing to launch NASA's next moon rocket later this month. From member station WMFE in Orlando, Brendan Byrne reports. The first flight of NASA's SLS rocket and Orion space capsule will carry no crew, but will lay the groundwork for future missions taking astronauts to the lunar surface. Crews at Kennedy Space Center will roll the rocket to its launch pad in about two weeks, with a launch as early as August 29th. The goal of NASA's Artemis 1 mission is to test the vehicle in deep space on a more than month-long mission around the moon and back. A Republican congresswoman from Indiana has died in a car crash. 58-year-old Jackie Walorski died in Elkhart County, Indiana, when a car from the opposite lane crashed into the vehicle carrying Walorski, also killed a member of the congresswoman's staff in Washington and a state GOP staffer. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 416 points, closing at 32,812. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Starting later this month, the MBTA will shut down the entire Orange Line for 30 days to speed up needed repairs in the wake of a federal review that identified safety shortcomings at the T. WBUR's Laura Craigle reports thousands of riders will be affected during this unprecedented closure. The T says up to 200 shuttle buses will help replace train service. It's also encouraging riders to work from home if possible or use the commuter rail, which will accept Charlie cards for fare payment. Governor Charlie Baker says he knows the full-on shutdown will be frustrating for passengers, but it'll let the T tackle a slew of upgrades relatively quickly rather than relying on years of evening and weekend closures. So riders will see improved service, safety, and reliability on a much faster timeline. During the shutdown, the T will replace track, upgrade signals, and roll out new train cars. It'll start the night of August 19th and continue through early morning on September 19th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. Riders of the Orange Line are starting to figure out how the closure will affect their commutes, and some of them are doubtful the shutdown will fix the line's problems. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. Leslie Good of Jamaica Plain gets to her job downtown on the Orange Line. She says the use of shuttle buses during the closure could double her commute, and she's not at all hopeful the disruption will make things better. This is optics, because what's going to happen is they're going to do this. And mark my words, in a few months, I'm still going to be sitting on a broken Orange Line train with the doors not working. It's going to still be a very poor functioning subway. State officials say the shutdown will accomplish work that would take five years with just night and weekend disruptions. Good says the only change that would give her hope is for new managers to take over the T from cities with better functioning subways. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Simon Rios. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey calls monkeypox a rising pandemic, and he wants a more robust response to combat it. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more on the senator's comments today on Radio Boston. Markey says the country's monkeypox response is feeling a bit like deja vu. We keep losing the lessons of public health history. He says an overtaxed, underfunded, and ill-prepared healthcare system is hampering that response. We should expect in an era where trade and travel lead to diseases moving, migrating very rapidly and not have put in place as the wealthiest country in the world, the stockpiles, the preventions, the readiness system to be able to respond. Markey says President Biden's appointment of officials from the CDC and FEMA to coordinate America's monkeypox response is a good step towards getting ahead of the virus. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. In sports, the Red Sox couldn't get the sweep down in Houston. They lost to the Astros this afternoon, 6-1. to one. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, it's going to be sunny and hot. The highs will be around 99 degrees. The heat index will make it feel a few degrees warmer. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between. Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. We've got some promising news to report from the gas pump of all places. Gasoline prices took a steep drop in recent weeks after hitting a record high earlier this summer. Gas still costs more now than it did this time last year, but the drop should take some pressure off inflation. And NPR's Scott Horsley is here to explain. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. How much of a break are drivers getting? It's been a pretty big break. Uh, if you th- remember back in June, the average price of gasoline nationwide hit a record high, just over $5 a gallon. Since then, it has dropped more than 85 cents a gallon, according to AAA. And some parts of the country, like Texas, have seen an even bigger decline. Uh, that's welcome news for drivers like Linda McDaniel, who has to commute 60 miles every day to her job in San Antonio. I filled up yesterday and it was 335. So yeah, I was I was excited about that. Because I have such a commute, I drive a uh, Honda Civic, which gets pretty good gas mileage. But with those bigger prices, I mean, it was really costing a significant amount more to fill up my tank. What changed? Why the prices drop? Well, it's partly supply and demand. Drivers did cut back on driving when prices got so high. Uh, They combined errands. McDaniel actually canceled a road trip to Colorado this summer. So gasoline consumption in the U.S. is actually down about 9% from a year ago, which is a pretty remarkable cutback. At the same time, the supply of domestic crude oil is up more than 6% over the last year. So that's part of the story. We have also seen growing concern about an economic slowdown around the world, and that is weighing on global oil prices, which account for about half the cost of gasoline. Patrick DeHaan, who's with the price-tracking website GasBuddy, says all of this is a recipe for falling prices at the pump. Gasoline prices now nationally down for 48 straight days, 81,000 stations across the country selling gasoline at $3.99 or less. 
Americans collectively are going to spend $340 million less on gasoline today than they did on June 16 when prices peaked. That's a significant difference. How is this likely to affect inflation, which hit another 40-year high in June? Well, it will certainly help some. Gasoline was the biggest driver of inflation between May and June. Uh, We'll get a look at July's cost of living next week, and hopefully the headline number will be lower than the month before. Other prices are still climbing, though, including some that tend to be stickier than gasoline, which often goes up and down. Uh, McDaniel, for example, rents a couple of storage units, and her rent has gone up by $100 a month. She's also worried about her electric bill because her air conditioner has been working overtime during the hot Texas summer. So the drop in gasoline prices certainly helps with the cost of living, but it is not a cure-all for high inflation. Yes, it is welcome relief, but I mean, you can definitely see in in just about everything, like in our soda machine, the price went up 25 cents overnight. (laughs) You know, it's just everything, every little thing you notice just goes up. Even a pack of gum, I noticed, went up 20 cents. So far, we're not seeing much relief on grocery or housing prices, and those are a bigger part of the average family budget than gasoline. Where do you expect gas prices to go from here? Well, Dehan, the Gas Buddy analyst, predicts the average price could uh, drop below $4 a gallon in the next week to 10 days. But there are some wild cards on the horizon. You know, if we get a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico that knocks out drilling rigs or refineries, uh, that could send prices climbing again. And so could a new geopolitical threat like we saw with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right. Today, baseball fans are remembering sportscaster Vince Scully. Scully, who died yesterday at the age of 94, got to call some of the game's greatest plays. Little roller up along first, behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Occasionally, he worked for national TV networks, but in Southern California, he was the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He called Dodger games for 67 years. And for people here in L.A., you heard Vin Scully on your radio. Thank you, Jerry. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good evening to you, wherever you may be. The Dodgers and the Chicago Cubs trying to find out what it's all about. Bill Shaken has been listening to Vin Scully on the radio for many, many years. He covers baseball and sports business for the Los Angeles Times, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. So just a couple of weeks ago, you happened to write a long piece about Vince Scully and Dodger fans, and you called going to Dodger games back then as, quote, the greatest communal experience in Southern California sports history. And I have to tell you, I feel so sad that I will never have known this personally with Vince Scully because I just moved to L.A. in 2020. But can you just describe for us what you meant by that? When the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles in 1958, they didn't know everybody that played. Also, while the Dodgers were waiting for their stadium to be constructed, they played in a football stadium at the L.A. Coliseum. So whether you went to the games and sat far, far away or you just listened to the games, Vin was the guy that taught everybody baseball in Los Angeles. And at the time the Dodgers had moved west, the transistor radio was coming into mainstream use. So when you went to Dodger games, whether at the Coliseum or later at Dodger Stadium, everybody was holding something in their hand. It wasn't a cell phone because we didn't have those (laughs) then. It was a transistor radio and it didn't have a million functions. All you could do was listen to the radio. and Everybody listened to Vin teach them baseball. And, And did you have one of those teeny weeny transistor radios up to your ear? I did. Kids in Southern California had the radio up to their ear at the game. And they had a transistor radio, as I did, 
in their pocket in class with the little cord coming out so they could listen to the game in their ear while they were supposed to be paying attention in math class. I want to talk a little bit about his style as a broadcaster because, you know, yeah, he was the voice of the Dodgers, but he was also known for like, um, you know, friendly play calling. Like he brought all kinds of fans in. Can you talk about that? If you listen to games today, you hear a lot about statistics, but Vin would not have a lot of patience, if you will, for exit velocities and home run distances because he wanted to share a story with you. He had other things to talk about. There used to be a second baseman named Dan Ugla. You wouldn't hear Vin say Dan Ugla hit a ball 107 miles an hour off the bat, but what you would always hear is, did you know that Ugla is Swedish for owl? (laughs) I did not know, and that's a very cool fact. (laughs) Well, since everyone is sharing their favorite Vin Scully story today, what's yours? I think the one that you come back to, especially living here in Southern California, is this call of Kirk Gibson's home run in the 1988 World Series. What really makes it special, and I think exemplifies Scully's manner, is when something dramatic happens, your natural tendency is to try to explain what's happening and add drama and sometimes go over the top. And if you listen to Vin Scully calling Kirk Gibson's home run, and you should call it up on YouTube if you haven't, this is what you hear. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. And then you hear the crowd. You don't hear for more than 30 seconds anything except the crowd because Vin doesn't need to amplify the moment. He's letting the crowd tell you what's going on at the ballpark. Phil Shaken, sports writer from the LA Times, remembering the late and great baseball announcer, Vin Scully. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk about Vin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As more states pass abortion bans, another option for those who give birth after an unwanted pregnancy is growing. Built into the side of fire stations or hospitals, baby boxes allow infants to be surrendered anonymously. For member station WFYI, Jill Sheridan reports on how Indiana leads the baby box effort. It was on a trip to South Africa in a small church where Monica Kelsey first encountered a baby box. I had never seen anything like this before. And so on the flight back from Cape Town, South Africa, on a Delta napkin, I hand drew my version of the baby box. The idea of a box where a baby could be safely and anonymously surrendered is centuries old. Kelsey opened the first U.S. box in the small town of Woodburn, Indiana, in 2016. Now there are 113 boxes across the country, 86 of them in Indiana. Today's boxes are temperature-controlled, alarm-activated safety incubators installed in the side of firehouses or hospitals. I think we all can agree that a baby box that calls 911 on its own is a better option than a dumpster. And so getting people to wrap their heads around that fact has been a struggle. Kelsey first faced opposition from Indiana's Department of Child Services. The then-director said there was, quote, no evidence to suggest the use of baby boxes is a safe, prudent way to surrender a child. Kelsey, a firefighter who was also abandoned as a baby, persisted. In 2017, the state's safe haven law was amended to include baby boxes. State lawmakers are currently writing Indiana's abortion ban that will likely include exceptions for rape, incest, and in cases of mother's health. 
Still, the demand for baby boxes will likely grow as more women find themselves with fewer choices in the event of an unwanted pregnancy. Santa Clara University law professor Michelle Oberman studies legal and ethical issues surrounding pregnancy and motherhood. She's concerned about mothers not knowing the boxes exist. It's really simple from a policy manner. It doesn't require you to face hard questions about what we owe people most impacted by abortion bans. Oberman says a majority of women who receive abortions are below the poverty line. Indiana's safe haven law has been on the books since 2000, but like many states, it has done little to advertise. But the word is spreading about safe haven baby boxes. There are plans for dozens more boxes across six states, including Ohio, Florida, and New Mexico. Many are funded privately through church donations. The city of Carmel opened its box in 2017, and Fire Chief David Habash views it as another door to the firehouse. Through this additional doorway into the fire station, for them to drop the baby off, then for us to go out and search for a missing baby, or and it, we can fill in the blank on many horrific things that have happened prior to the safe haven program here in the state of Indiana. Baby boxes have safely accepted 21 healthy infants. In Indiana, the Carmel station alone has had three in the past four months. For Chief Habush, the issue is simple. This is an opportunity for us to take care of another human being, and it will be exciting to see uh, if the families allow us what, what place in history these people, these human beings that are being trusted to the firefighters to see where they end up. Indiana's safe haven law allows anyone to safely surrender their baby within 30 days of birth. For NPR News, I'm Jill Sheridan in Indianapolis. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 76 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, the death toll on the McKinney fire burning in Northern California has now risen to four with authorities warning that it could still go up. Read all about it all month long, where you've been sharing ideas and favorite picks for summer reading, including some with a New England twist. Get in on the fun at WBUR.org slash beachbooks. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 70 degrees. Tomorrow's going to be sunny and hot. Highs around 99 degrees. Partly sunny with a chance of showers and thunderstorms on Friday. The highs will be around 96. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. This is one of those years where a lot of Republicans could be elected who in an ordinary year would not be elected. So honestly, everywhere that the Democrats choose a far-right candidate and that candidate wins the primary, Democrats are rolling the dice. This is a dangerous strategy. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8. 
on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The death toll from the McKinney fire burning in Northern California has now risen to four, with authorities warning that number could still go up. Much of the tiny town of Klamath River, which is near the Oregon border, has reportedly burned. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports that this is one of several fires burning out of control in the West, which has again been baking in record heat. The McKinney Fire, so far California's largest and deadliest wildfire this year, has now burned close to 90 square miles of dry, overgrown forests since it ignited Friday. But there is finally some good news, humidity and rain. Fire behavior analyst Dennis Burns says storms dumped three inches over at least parts of the fire last night. But other parts of the fire got no rain whatsoever. Uh, We're going into a warmer, drier period, so we expect to see the activity increase pretty significantly today through tomorrow. He means more dreaded red flag warnings for extreme fire danger through at least tomorrow. That's the story across this drought-stricken region from here on the West Coast to the Great Plains, where prairie fires have ignited in Wyoming and burned homes in Nebraska. Climate scientists are again warning that prolonged heat waves, like a week of extreme heat recently from Washington State to Montana, are more common now with climate change. Well, just the triple digits, you know, 100 degrees plus, you know, that's not a good recipe. C.T. Camel is a fire prevention officer with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes in Montana. There, the Elmo fire has been burning out of control and threatening homes and closing roads along Flathead Lake at the height of tourist season. Camel says his crews can't catch a break because these modern wildfires no longer lay down at night. It's still hot. It's always been a go, go, go type job. But, you know, when when the fires are getting bigger, quicker because of the wind, because of the flashy fuels and the heat, you know, it does take its toll on some of the firefighters. Firefighters already in short supply due to labor shortages are exhausted. And with these erratic fires burning so hot they create their own weather, the conditions often just aren't safe for crews to even try to slow down the flames. Retired firefighter Timothy Inglesby runs the Oregon-based Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology. It's a group pushing for an overhaul in U.S. fire suppression and prevention policies. Productivity is very low in these really hot and dry and smoky conditions. Inglesby says mostly crews can just try to protect homes and lives in the fire's path. You're not going to stop these blazes. That's again the plan today on the McKinney Fire in Northern California, where firefighters are working to slow its eastward spread toward the town of Wairika. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Los Angeles. The price of food just keeps going up. That's changing the way we shop and the way we eat. Brooke Neubauer runs the Just One Project, which works to end hunger in southern Nevada. And for more than a year, she's been helping us understand what the shifting economy looks like for people who come to her organization for food. Back in March, food prices had already risen sharply, and she told me that that was taking a toll on her organization. Now, our groceries that we're trying to purchase are more expensive due to that. And then also, too, just us being able to access those items are really hard. Since then, prices have gone up even more. So we've invited Brooke Neubauer to catch us up on what this has meant for her organization and her clients. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you so much. It's great chatting with you guys. Tell us, what's the new challenge and what's the solution that you've found? What's different? One of the latest challenges is housing costs for folks. So now we're seeing 
we're just seeing so many more decisions on where to put money towards. Uh, is it gas? Is it groceries? Is it now increased rent? So we're really seeing a lot of new clients come into the community market that have never had to access help before. Hmm. It's interesting. You know, we've been talking to you over the months, more than a year, about the price of food. But what I'm hearing is that everything is related in the economy. If the price Mm -hmm. of gas goes up, if the price of rent Mm -hmm. goes up, then people can't afford to buy as much food. The cost of food doesn't exist in isolation. Or how about if somebody can't afford gas, how can they possibly go to a food pantry to get food? And do you hear from those people? We do. And we are very, very fortunate that we have a fleet of seven vehicles and seven drivers that are able to do deliveries. So not only do we have a fresh meal delivery, but we also have grocery delivery for clients that are seniors. But also because of COVID, we expanded that into non-senior serving for our home delivery. Given the supply chain problems and the cost of food going up, if I were to have visited just one a year ago, would I have seen different specific food items than what you're offering today? A year ago, the shortages were so different. You know, a year ago, it was strictly freight, the cost. So we were having to decide, okay, do we want to pay twice as much money for potatoes and grapes and oranges. And now it just seems like the issue is, do they have enough grapes in stock for us to purchase? Oh, so before it was like, can we afford the cost of getting the grapes? Now it's like, can we even find grapes at all? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So that has been a little challenging. But what we do is we're working with our staff to find out what's available. And then we build recipes around that so that clients, you know, can make a healthy meal out of the items that we do have in stock. Give us an example. So vegetable primavera, we had sourced tomatoes and zucchini and garlic. And so we would decide, okay, do we want to pay $2,000 extra to get tomatoes? Or do we want to do tomato sauce because it might be cheaper for us? Is there a client you've spoken to recently who you really remember? I met a a woman, she was in her 60s, and she's a new client of ours. And she said that she had come from corporate America, and she never expected herself to be in lines accessing food pantry. And I just thought, wow, this is, you know, a woman who thought she planned well, who never thought that she couldn't afford her monthly groceries or she had to choose between medication and groceries. So when someone says to you, I've never been to a place like this before, I never thought I would need to, what do you say to them? I told her, thank you so much for trusting us to serve her. And look, she might be a client for more than three or four times. And I really just felt grateful that she found us and that we can help her in her time of need. That's Brooke Neubauer of The Just One Project. She's one of our American indicators, people across the country who we've been following through the pandemic recession and recovery. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari. I appreciate your time.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Ji Hee Ha, a member of the NPR Foundation Board of Trustees, working to help provide the highest quality public service journalism to communities across the USA. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, Social Security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up at 6 o'clock, as All Things Considered continues, NPR investigates how you, the United States lost its own technology to China. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It was beyond promise. We were seeing it functioning as designed, as expected. The U.S. spent millions researching and perfecting a breakthrough battery, only to give the technology to a company in China. It's Wednesday, August 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown, coming up an NPR investigation into how the U.S. lost its own technology to China. Also, Turkey is part of NATO and keeps close ties with the West, but its president is on his way to Russia with some very specific requests. And Governor Baker announces the MBTA will shut down the entire Orange Line for a full month so that they can perform some much-needed repairs. The Red Sox couldn't get the sweep down in Houston. They lost this afternoon to the Astros 6-1. We have some hot and humid days ahead. It's 6.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Congressional Budget Office said today the Democrats' sweeping bill tackling climate change, prescription drugs, and inflation will result in a roughly $300 billion decrease in the deficit. Here's Deepa Shivaram as more. If the package gets signed into law, it would result in a net decrease in the deficit of $102 billion between now and 2031. That's according to the Congressional Budget Office, whose job it is to score how pieces of legislation would affect the economy and the budget. The CBO notes that additional IRS enforcement in the bill would add another $200 billion in revenue. All in, that would mean a roughly $300 billion decrease in the deficit over the next decade. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says Democrats are on track to put it to a vote in the coming days. But with no Republicans likely to back it, the spending package will need all 50 Democratic votes, plus a tiebreaker from Vice President Harris. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. 
Just over a month after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, abortion providers around the country are seeing a significant uptick in patients traveling for the procedure. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports a new report documents the increased travel in immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court decision in late June. Traveling for an abortion is nothing new, especially for patients in many states where clinics were already few and far between before the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision was issued on June 24th. But now, according to new data from the National Abortion Federation, a growing number of patients facing newly enforceable abortion bans are crossing state lines for the procedure. From June 24th through July July 25th, the group says its hotline paid for 76 hotel rooms for patients, up from five during the same period last year. More than 50 people sought help with plane or bus fare compared to just one a year ago. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. President Biden is still testing positive for COVID, but his doctor says he continues to feel well. More from NPR's Franco Ordonez. Dr. Kevin O'Connor writes that President Biden remains fever-free and is in good spirits. He examined Biden after the president finished a light workout today, which the doctor pointed out Biden enjoyed. O'Connor adds that the president's temperature and blood pressure remain normal and that his lungs are clear. Biden is continuing to work in isolation from the executive residence, where he has been hosting virtual meetings and delivering remarks. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. After more than a dozen years that has included some spectacular crashes, dozens of scams and Ponzi schemes, well, of hundreds of billions made in loss, Congress finally appears to be ready to wade into the debate over regulation of the cryptocurrency industry. The proposal would include a regulatory authority over Bitcoin and Ether by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. You're listening to... NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA is shutting down the entire Orange Line for 30 days starting later this month. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports it's so the T can make necessary track repairs and safety upgrades. The line will be shut down from August 19th until September 19th. The move comes on the heels of safety inspections that found track defects that have led to several derailments. Governor Charlie Baker says the accelerated repair plan is the quickest way to make the Orange Line faster, safer, and more reliable. To put it in perspective, the 30 days of 24-hour access to rebuild and replace tracks across this line will replace what would have taken five full years of weekend and evening diversions. Shuttle buses will replace trains during the shutdown. The T says the commuter rail could also be an option, and people can use Charlie cards to pay the fare. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Vice President Kamala Harris is coming to Boston tomorrow to meet with political leaders and abortion rights advocates. They'll be discussing ways to protect reproductive rights in light of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. After a roundtable meeting, the vice president heads to Martha's Vineyard for a pair of Democratic fundraising events. A new hotline is up and running for people in the state to call and report acts of hate. People can call the End Hate Now hotline to report actual hate crimes, potential hate crimes, or concerns about people who may be espousing such views. The number is 1-833-634-8669, and callers can remain anonymous. The number was established by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts following several recent incidents of hateful graffiti and demonstrations by hate groups in the Boston area. 
Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is declaring a heat emergency in the city starting tomorrow. Actual temperatures are expected to reach the upper 90s, but when you factor in humidity, it could feel over 100 degrees tomorrow and Friday. The heat emergency will be in effect through Sunday. Boston will open cooling centers at its 16 centers for youth and families from 9 to 5 each day. A few medical care providers talk to patients about their risk, their heat risks and how to avoid them. A toolkit out today aims to change that. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports. The kit has tips and action plans for patients, providers, and clinics. It focuses on patients with diabetes, kidney disease, asthma, and COPD, conditions that heat can inflame. Dr. Ari Bernstein at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health co-led work on the project. In the context of climate shocks, we have to be sure we're working to protect those most at risk first and keeping people safe from harms that are already here and the evidence is abundantly clear will grow greater with time. Some providers say an online resource will make it easier to include conversations about heat during already packed short patient appointments. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Sports, the Red Sox lost to the Astros today, 6-1 to one, the final score there. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow is going to be sunny and hot. The highs around 99 degrees. The heat index will make it feel a lot warmer. Partly sunny with a few chances of a chance of a few showers and thunderstorms on Friday. The highs around 96. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's a favorite promise of politicians. Keep manufacturing jobs and technology in America. And yet the U.S. keeps losing both to other countries. NPR's Laura Sullivan and Courtney Flatt from Public Radio's Northwest News Network investigate one story about a cutting-edge battery and how the U.S. may have lost the next big thing to China again. Chris Howard is standing in the rain outside an empty warehouse in Muckleteal, Washington. We used to have 10 shipping containers here. There were empty containers back here, customers and clients coming for visits. Howard used to work in this warehouse with more than a dozen other engineers and researchers for an American company called Uni Energy. Its name is still on the sign out front. What they were doing here was building a battery, not just any battery, something called a vanadium redox flow battery. It was about the size of a refrigerator, and Howard and the rest of the employees thought it was going to change the world. It was more than a job. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into developing a product that we were really excited about and really proud of. Unlike batteries in cell phones or even cars, these batteries could charge and discharge energy for as long as 30 years. And this particular design seemed to hold enough energy to power a house. Researchers pictured people plunking them down next to their air conditioners, attaching solar panels to them, and everyone living happily ever after off the grid. It was beyond promise. We were seeing it functioning as designed, as expected. They thought the batteries would be the next great American success story. But that's not what happened. Today, this warehouse is shuttered and empty. All the employees who worked here were laid off. And across the world, a Chinese company is making the batteries in Dalian, China. The Chinese company didn't steal this technology. It was given to them. 
by the U.S. Department of Energy. An NPR investigation found the department allowed the technology and jobs to move overseas, violating its own licensing rules, while failing to intervene on behalf of U.S. workers in multiple instances, according to internal department emails. Now China is forging ahead, investing millions into this cutting-edge green technology that was supposed to help keep the U.S. and its economy out front. It just is mind-boggling. Joanne Skivoski is the vice president of finance for a U.S. company called Forever Energy that has been trying to get a license from the department to make the batteries here for more than a year. This is technology made from taxpayer dollars. It was invented by a national lab and it's deployed in China, and it's held in China. To say it's frustrating is an understatement. Department of Energy officials declined NPR's request for an interview and wouldn't explain how technology that cost U.S. taxpayers $15 million ended up in China. But after NPR sent department officials detailed questions laying out the timeline of events, officials terminated the license it gave to the Chinese company. In a statement, officials said the department, quote, takes American manufacturing obligations extremely seriously and is now, quote, undertaking an internal review of the licensing of vanadium battery technology. The story of how this happened begins where the battery was born, three hours southwest of Seattle, in the basement of a government lab called the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, where Courtney went to visit. Safety goggles on? Yep. <laughs> Vince Sprinkle works with energy storage here at the lab. We're going to go down into the redox flow battery lab. It was down here in 2006 that more than two dozen scientists began to suspect that a special mix of acid and electrolyte could hold unusual amounts of energy without degrading. They turned out to be right. Do you feel kind of like on the cutting edge of learning about these batteries? <laughs> yeah, we are. I mean, I, I think we've got one of the leading research groups uh, in the country and probably the world in this technology. It's because of this leading edge that when a success happens, the lab encourages scientists to go out and see if they can make and sell the inventions in the real world. The lab and the U.S. government still hold the patents because American taxpayers paid for the research, but the Department of Energy licenses the patents to scientists and companies willing to take a shot. In this case, it took six years and millions of taxpayer dollars to discover the perfect battery recipe. Gary Yang was the lead scientist, and he was excited to see if he could make them. In 2012, he left the lab with the license in hand and started Uni Energy Technologies at the warehouse in Mukilteo, Washington. I left the lab, followed legal process, and started Uni Energy Technology in Washington State. He hired engineers and researchers, but then he ran into trouble. He says he couldn't find any U.S. investors. I talked to almost all major investment banks. None of them invest in battery. So he turned to a Chinese businessman in a company called Dalian Runka Power and its parent company, which agreed to invest and even help manufacture the batteries. And so began a slow shift. First, Chris Howard said, it was just some parts. Ultimately, it was the whole process. Manufacturing was subsequently shifted to our uh, sister company in China, uh, and they would take on that role. In 2017, Yang and Uni Energy formalized the situation and gave Runka Power an official sublicense, allowing the company to make the batteries. 
So here's the thing. Companies can choose to manufacture in China. But in this case, Yang's original license clearly says on page six he has to sell batteries in the United States. And those batteries have to be, quote, substantially manufactured here. Yang acknowledges he didn't do that. He was mostly selling batteries in China, and the batteries he did sell here were largely made in China. But he says in all those years, the department never raised any concerns or intervened. Then, in 2019, Chris Howard said he and the other engineers were called to a conference room. Supervisors told them they, too, would have to go to China to work there for four months at a time at Runka Power. And that was set to be increased on the premise that there were certain government programs, Chinese government programs, that would support funding efforts. So it was unclear, certainly to myself and some of the other engineers, what the plan was. In a statement, the department said that license monitoring is a priority and that a review of this case is underway. All of which brings us to Yang. Yang was born in China, but he is a U.S. citizen and got his Ph.D. at the University of Connecticut. He says he wanted to manufacture here, but at the time, China was doing more to encourage battery production. And he told us... China could do it better. In this field, manufacturing engineering, China ahead of the U.S. China is ahead of the U.S. Ahead of the U.S. Many wouldn't believe engineering-wise ahead. He says far from helping China, the Chinese engineers were helping his U.S. employees. But you can see in several news reports at the time, it was helping China. The Chinese government launched several large demonstration projects and announced millions in funding. As things began to take off in China, here in the States, Yang was once again in financial trouble. So he made a decision that would again keep the technology from staying in the U.S. He transferred the license from Uni Energy to a company called Venetis. Venetis is based in the Netherlands, and we will set up a holding company in Switzerland. Rulof Plottenkampf is Venetis's founding partner. Plottenkampf told NPR the company's plan was to continue making the batteries in China and then set up a factory in Germany and eventually maybe the U.S. He says he has to manufacture in Europe because the European Union has strict rules about these things. I have to be a European company, or certainly a non-Chinese company in Europe. But the United States has these rules too. And any transfer of a U.S. government license needs U.S. government approval. Which Yang apparently had no trouble getting. We looked at department emails and found that last summer on July 7th, one of the top officials at Uni Energy wrote to a government manager at the Department of Energy lab in Washington, saying they were going to make a deal with Venetis. We believe they have the right blend of technical expertise, the official wrote. The manager wrote back that he would need confirmation. A second employee sent confirmation an hour and a half later, and the license was transferred. Now, if anyone from the lab or the Department of Energy during that hour and a half thought to check whether Venetis was an American company or whether it intended to manufacture in the United States is unclear. Even Venetis's website says it plans to make the batteries in China. Department of Energy officials told us they take all license transfers seriously and have recently closed significant loopholes. But they acknowledge their efforts rely to some extent on, quote, 
good faith disclosures by the companies, which means if companies like Uni Energy don't say anything, the U.S. government may never know. It's a problem government investigators found has been going on for years. In 2018, the Government Accountability Office found the department lacked resources to properly monitor its licenses, was relying on antiquated computer systems, and didn't have consistent policies across its labs. It was an American company, Forever Energy, that actually read the vanadium battery license and raised a red flag more than a year ago. Joanne Skibosky and others there say they repeatedly warned department officials that the Uni Energy license was not in compliance. Officials repeatedly told them it was. How is it that the National Lab did not require U.S. manufacturing? Not only is it a violation of the license, it's a violation to our country. Skivoski hopes that now that the department has revoked the license, Forever Energy will get a chance. They're hoping to open a factory in Louisiana. We are ready to go with this technology. Skivoski told us it will be hard at this point for any American company to catch up. Industry trade reports list Dalian Runke Power as the number one manufacturer of vanadium flow batteries worldwide. And the bigger question looming over all of this is whether China will stop making the batteries once an American company is granted the right to start making them. That may be unlikely. Chinese news reports announced this summer that China is about to bring online one of the largest battery farms in the world, hoping to set new records for energy output. The reports say the entire battery farm is built out of vanadium redux flow batteries. I'm Courtney Flatt. And I'm Laura Sullivan. NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. 75 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, the MBTA is shutting down the Orange Line for a full month in order to catch up on repairs. In business news, a Utah-based resort company is making a bid to buy Vermont's Jay Peak Ski Resort. Jay Peak's former owner and president was recently involved in a massive fraud case, and a court-appointed receiver has been overseeing the resort since 2016. The receiver is seeking court approval to sell Jay Peak to Pacific Group Resorts for $58 million and for permission to continue to market the resort. Utah-based Pacific Group Resorts already owns Ragged Mountain in New Hampshire. On Wall Street today, stocks were higher. The Dow finished up one and a quarter percent or 416 points at 32,812. NASDAQ rose two and a half percent or 319 points, closing at 12,668. And the S&P 500 was up a half a per, one and a half percent or 64 points to close at 41.55. You'll get the full range of business news on Marketplace coming up at 6.30 here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Landmarks Orchestra's free concert, Beethoven's Ninth, and the world premiere of Dr. Diane White Clayton's Many Mansions, this Saturday night at 7 at the DCR Hatshell. And Innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 13th. Hunter Douglas automated power view shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. This is All Things Considered on WBUR. I'm Steve Brown, in for Lisa Mullins. The MBTA will shut down Orange Line service for a month, beginning in mid-August. Governor Charlie Baker and T officials announced the shutdown earlier today as a way to speed up repairs that the line needs. Reporter Laura Craigle joins us now. Laura, welcome. 
Hi, Steve. Thanks. So what exactly is being shut down? For how long and for why? Well, the Orange Line train service will be shut down starting 9 p.m. on August 19th all the way through September 19th at 5 a.m. And that will be the whole line from Oak Grove and Malden all the way to Forest Hills in Jamaica Plain. The MBTA's general manager, Steve Poftak, says the purpose is to speed up the pace of needed repairs. Um, And here's what he said at a press conference this afternoon. This is an unprecedented service diversion for the MBTA. We have never shut down an entire line in this way in order to make sweeping improvements. But we're doing this because it's it's the fastest, most efficient way to deliver the benefits to our customers. And so the T will make repairs like replacing track and ties, upgrading signals, and rolling out new trains as well. Without doing the shutdown, officials said the repairs that they plan to finish over this month would have taken five years. And of course, officials were asked if it'll really take 30 days, and Poftex says they've built in enough of a cushion that they think it will get done in that time. Well, what will be done to try to help passengers get around during the shutdown? It sounds like the main replacement for all the passengers who normally take the Orange Line will be shuttle bus service. The T's board approved a $37 million contract just this morning to use a Yankee Line buses. Um, So that'll be up to 200 free shuttle buses operating. Additionally, the T is encouraging riders to use the commuter rail instead. Uh, The commuter rail runs along a similar route to the Orange Line, though it doesn't connect through downtown Boston the way the Orange Line does. Um, And while the shutdown is underway, officials say your regular old Charlie card will work on Zones 1, 1A, and 2, which overlap with the areas served by the Orange Line. Uh, On top of that, they are even encouraging folks who are able to to work from home. And it's worth noting that the MBTA data shows the Orange Line has the second highest ridership in the system, uh, only behind the red line. Hmm. Now, thousands of of T-riders will be affected by this. How are folks reacting to the news of the shutdown? I spoke to a couple Orange Line riders today at Wellington Station, and they were both very concerned about whether they're going to be able to get to work on time. Here's Rui Tashida. He's a Somerville resident who rides the Orange Line regularly. Well, that's pretty detrimental. I have, uh, I, I work two jobs and I have about an hour to commute in between and it's already very on the, on the, the dime. With the shutdown, Tashida says it's going to be even tougher to get to his second job on time and he's going to have to talk to his boss and see if maybe they need to make some changes to his schedule. Uh, that said, he does really, really want faster and more reliable Orange Line service as a regular rider and if the shutdown can help make it happen, he'd be happy. So, Laura, stepping back, how did we get to the point of this drastic step being needed? Well, the MBTA has been having high-profile problem after high-profile problem for a while now, especially over the past year. A green line collision last summer, derailments, a crossing signal malfunction that led to a woman's death, a man who was dragged to death by a red line train, to to name a few. Um, This spring, the Federal Transit Administration began looking into the MBTA's operations um, and said in a letter to the T that it was extremely concerned with the ongoing safety issues. The Orange Line has had issues with some of its cars. I'm sure you remember when the train caught fire a couple weeks ago. Um, The T says the shutdown will allow them to roll out new trains on the line, and so the vast majority of them will be new after the work's done. And what's more, the T says it should be able to lift a number of speed limits that are currently in place on the Orange Line to make the service faster. Uh, The T's general manager, Steve Poftak, says the T received directives from the FTA to accelerate those critical track upgrades. And he says they've heard from riders that they just want the service to be better. We've heard them loud and clear. 
that they want bold action to improve the MBTA at the pace they deserve. And we know that we can't wait. So part of this shutdown is about not waiting. It is about making the necessary improvements and making them now. So we'll have to see if this satisfies T passengers and the feds. The FTA is expected to put out its report on the MBTA sometime later this month. Okay, thank you very much. WBUR's Laura Kregel. Thanks. Russian President Vladimir Putin plans to host Turkey's leader at a meeting in Russia on Friday. It's the second time the two men have met in the last few weeks. These meetings raise concerns in the West because Turkey is a NATO member and could be key in trying to end Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Turkey does have close ties to the West, but it also seeks some specific items from Russia. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Istanbul. For Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the meeting with Putin could be a chance to advance one of his key foreign policy goals, to establish a so-called security corridor along the Syrian border by pushing back Kurdish fighters that Turkey sees as terrorists. Erdogan has been saying that move, which the U.S. and other countries oppose, could come at any time. As soon as our work to repair the deficiencies of the security corridor we created on the Syrian border are finished, we will start new operations there. Karim Haas, a Moscow-based analyst focusing on Turkish-Russian relations, says the number one topic at the talks is likely to be Erdogan seeking assurance that Russia, which has troops in Syria, won't interfere with any Turkish offensive. So probably President Erdogan wants to get a green light or at least a yellow light from Moscow that, as you know, Russia mainly controls the airspace in northern Syria. Sinan Ogin at the Istanbul-based Center for Politics and Foreign Policy Studies says Erdogan has also promised to send a million Syrian refugees back to their country. Ogin says a cross-border operation could seek to lay the groundwork to get that process started. That region could also be used to facilitate or to incentivize the return of Syrian refugees, especially if some of the refugees hail from that region. So that's the second objective. But what would Russia hope to get out of this meeting? Ogin says Putin will likely seek help for a Russian economy battered by Western sanctions over the invasion of Ukraine. In particular, he says, bilateral trade using domestic currencies instead of the dollar could be a boost for Moscow, whose banks were cut off from international payment systems. So far, Ulgin says Turkey has been remarkably persuasive in convincing its NATO allies that Turkey can't afford to alienate Russia by imposing sanctions as other countries have done. But he says Ankara has to perform a diplomatic balancing act. Of course, Turkey has to be careful that it should not create the perception that not only does Ankara not implement sanctions, but it should not be viewed as a country that helps Russia evade the sanctions. Analyst Karim Haas says watching Turkish forces launch an operation in Syria is not something that Moscow or the Syrian government wants to see. But Russia may decide not to actively oppose it. Of course, Russia will condemn in such a situation, diplomatically will condemn, but on the ground, Russia will not stand against Turkish military, in my opinion. He also says Moscow may calculate that a military operation would boost Erdogan's re-election chances next year, which Russia would likely prefer to a new opposition party government in Ankara. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. You're 
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 75 degrees in Boston at 629. Coming up next at 630 on WBUR, it's Marketplace. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 70 degrees. Tomorrow's going to be sunny and hot. Highs will be around 99 degrees. The heat index will make it feel a few degrees warmer than that. Partly sunny with a chance of showers or thunderstorms on Friday. The highs around 96 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Mass Farmers Markets. Summer vacation season is here. Explore all the delicious locally produced foods Massachusetts has to offer at farmers markets, restaurants, and specialty grocers. Learn where to find the best food at eatlikealocal.ma.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism.